You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentary's Global Rankings. Hi, welcome to Nick Luck Daily. It's Tuesday the 11th of October. Tom Stanley in for Nick. I'm joined by senior writer at the Racing Post, Lee Mottershead. Two, first and foremost, look ahead to Kipco British Champions Day this Saturday. Excellent six-race card in prospect. Lee, what's at the forefront of your mind? Well, I think I would echo uh, everything that David Yates said to, to Nick on the pod yesterday, Tom, in that I think it is a day that is strong from top to bottom um it's a day when i think um I, i've always thought and i, I continue to think that the the pre de triomphe is the the supreme championship of european racing and that hasn't that doesn't change but i do think that as a single day um kipco british champions day is now a stronger event than arc weekend i think if you look at the the races that would compete between Longchamp and Ascot, um, races like the Prix du Cadran, the, the Prix de l'Opera, Prix de la Forêt, I think generally the, the Ascot races are now stronger races than those comparative ones in France. And I certainly think that all the five uh, group races on Saturday, and they are in effect five group ones, the, the, the Stayers race is a group two, but it's a group one in all but in all but official patent status. They are excellent contests. I think it's it's good to see that the the fields look like being strong in terms of quantity as well as quantity. The, the Phillies race, for example, or it has 17 horses left in it. That's kind of a, a double-figure uh, field size. The, the sprint, albeit perhaps lacking in absolute superstars this year, looks like having a, a very deep event. Uh, and then, of course, we have the two showpiece races. If I can just come back to the um, superiority comment uh, regarding Kipco British Champions Day to Arc Day in, in, at Longchamp, um, I think certainly this year with Baid's presence, that is the case. What I would say is that Longchamp has a more rounded card, in my opinion, because of the two juvenile races that that kick it off. For all they weren't the strongest contest this year, it still has the presence of juveniles on a on a, a, a championship day or a championship event. And that's one thing, and I know Nick is a, a champion of this, but that's one thing I think that, that Champions Day at Ascot just lacks. Whether or not it's on the agenda for the future, I don't know. Well, that's a very good point, and it's one that's really been a theme that has run through Champions Day from, from start to finish, Tom, that absence of a championship two-year-old race, and does that detract from... The day, I think it, it does, um, and I know that Kipco um, and British Champion Series have long wanted to have a two-year-old race on the card. Now, of course, it is not as simple as just putting a two-year-old race on the card. If you want to stage a, a pattern race, you have to find an existing pattern race. There isn't one that's attached to this card um, as an entity. Now, for a long time. Well, in, in the early years, I think the, the, the talk was about the Dewhurst Stakes, but Newmarket and Ascot had done so many race swaps. And I think both agreed that they'd reached a point that was fair for both parties. Newmarket's owners at Jockey Club are a, uh, a, a, a one of the part owners, if you like, of British Champions Series, of British Champions Day. So this is, to an extent, a Jockey Club event, but Newmarket is their race course. 
Um, and I think for them, losing the Dewhurst would be too seen as too big a loss. The the next option, the obvious option, was what was the Racing Post Trophy and is now the the Ten Futurity Trophy at Doncaster. Now there have been over the years conversations between British Champion Series and Doncaster's owners arc about acquiring that race. It has never happened, I think, partly because the Doncaster race has been doing very well in itself where it is. It's been producing superstar horses. Um, it's a big event for Doncaster, albeit it falls outside now the parameters of the, the core flat season. But it would require a commercial transaction. And ARC would have to want to, in effect, sell that race to British Champion Series. And there would be a price that both parties would have to agree to. Now, I don't, I don't know what the nego- negotiations were over the years, but that's clearly never borne fruit. When I did a piece last year on the 10th anniversary of uh, British Champion Series, um, it was suggested to me that the race that had become uh, risen to the forefront of negotiations, discussions, was the Mill Reef Stakes, Newbury's race. Now, whether in time that might move to British Champions Day, um, I suppose that's a, that's a possibility, whatever, guys, that happened. But I agree, I think the card does need a, uh, or would benefit from a two-year-old Group 1, ideally, perhaps a group two starting off with that becomes a group one. I would, however, say that for all that, it has felt to me in recent years that the two group ones on Arc Day, the Marcel Boussac and the Jean-Luc Lagardère, have been struggling. I don't think they have been the definitive championship events that we grew up watching. That's partly because the British and Irish participation in those races hasn't been anything like as strong as it used to be. Um, the, 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 the British autumn group one two-year-old races have remained very strong. They've, they've somehow, they've somehow changed in, in their, in their guises. The Phillies mile moved from Ascot to Newmarket. Um, but, but those races have still performed really, really well. Stronger, I would say, than the French races. So although I would love to see a two-year-old race on Champions Day, I think our back-end two-year-old programme is actually working really well. One other thing I'd say to them about Champions Day in general is that I think there will be interest, certainly from my part, and I think from others too, in how it performs in terms of a TV audience. The, it was discussed yesterday on, on the pod, and it has been in the Racing Post, that, that Rod Street um, from British Champions Series has been very open in saying that ticket sales haven't been as strong as in previous years, in the Queen Anne enclosure, um, which is the the enclosure that had suffered most during Royal Ascot because it's it, 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 it's, it's attracting, if you like, the, the, the more normal everyday race goer who isn't maybe spending a fortune on hospitality but just wants to have a day at the races and they're the people who are being hardest hit in the current financial crisis. So I think numbers on the on the course will be will be slightly down on previous years, but the TV audience will be interesting because for all that Champions Day has been a fantastic day, one that I um, am a huge supporter of, and I think has worked really really well as a race day, and generally speaking has worked really well in terms of getting crowds to Ascot. It hasn't stood out as a TV event. Um, it's been broadcast on three channels now: the BBC, Channel Four, and ITV. It started off with. Uh, a relative bang on the BBC, but that was partly because it was Frankel, uh, and in Frankel's final year, he signed off with with a with a win in what was the BBC's final ever horse race that, that Champions Race at Frankel won. 
But since then, numbers haven't been strong. And that's not, I don't think, because of the quality of the programmes that have been broadcast by, by Channel 4 and then ITV. Just for whatever reason, Champions Day hasn't become a TV event, even with promotional trailers and with, with a huge effort from broadcasters. Viewers haven't turned to it as a special event in the way they do the Grand National and, to a lesser extent, the Cheltenham Festival, the Derby and Royal Ascot. Indeed, in most recent years, Champions Day has rated less than future Champions Day the week before and then significantly less than the jump Saturdays that have followed on ITV. It will be interesting to see if Bayid has any sort of bounce factor for the TV audience because so far, as a TV event... Champions Day isn't getting the audience that its organisers would very much want. And as you say, Bayid probably the biggest pull since Frankel. So that 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 bookends that as far as unbeaten Colts go and, and the and the audience pull. That um that will be very interesting to see. Um it's also on um two non-terrestrial channels. Um Kip Cobra's Champions Day, the only event that is, is on Racing TV and, and at the races too. Um you mentioned attendances. There was a, a story in the Racing Post regarding jumps attendances being down. And th- there's definite concern for this winter, continuing a theme we've seen on the flat th- throughout the summer, Lee. Yeah, that's right. And it, 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 it is maintaining um, a theme. The Racing Post has been running stories for most of this year now, looking at the previous month's attendances and how they compared to 2020 to 2021 and perhaps even more importantly how they compared to to 2019 the final pre-covid year and the the continued narrative has been that numbers have been down and that remained the case for figures that have come out for august um the average crowd in august of course is in britain was 4048 that was a drop on 4125 in 2021 but a 27% decrease on the 2019 figure of 5318 that's the lowest average since records began in 1995 and if you look at the the year to date as a whole January 1st to August 31st that's what we have data for at the moment that uh, we've seen a 17.4 percent drop since 2019 again the lowest figure since 1995 so numbers have been down that has been a story throughout the year it's been the case in Ireland as well it's been it's been the case to a certain extent in other sports, but not all arenas. I wrote a Racing Post column piece uh, earlier this year to say that in the in the first few months of this year, theatre audiences for, for musical theatre in the West End were actually stronger than they had been in 2019. So people are still going to events. They haven't been going horse racing the way that we would have liked to see. Race courses are suggesting that they are going to react to that. We had a racing post story by Jonathan Harding in the post today. He spoke to Chepstow, who said that they're looking to revise some of their entrance prices. Um, Hexham uh, are planning to put a hold on, on their prices so far. I thought interesting comments from, from Rob Street as well, who spoke about why perhaps race courses don't just want to lower their prices in the way that a lot of us have thought would be the obvious thing to do. He said, if you look at a price point for any race meeting that has performed reliably for 10 or more years, but the current climate means it's struggling, it might not be the right thing to do to change that price as you can damage it 
and it could take any number of years to bring the value back. I think the argument that Rod is making is almost akin to the one that racecourses face with race sponsorships, in that if you are two or three weeks off a big race that hasn't got a, a sponsor, do you give that sponsorship away at a lower, lower price than you would normally sell it for? On the basis, yes, you get something for it, but then do you devalue it as a commodity in future years? I think that's the, the argument that Rod, Rod is making, and I understand it because that doesn't help those people who simply can't afford the current prices. You know, Rod says it's better to innovate and add value in another way through offers, and that, that very well might be the case. But if you can't afford the 25, 30, 40 quid or whatever that the racecourse is charging because of the, the financial crisis that will hit ever harder through the winter, then that's no help to you. So I think it will be a difficult winter. There's a feeling that jumps audiences might be more resilient than flat audiences because there is a greater following for jumps racing. And there's no doubt that there is a greater following for jumps racing. But jumps audiences like flat audiences are going to face the same financial pressures. So it will be really interesting and extremely important how this goes over the winter, particularly for racecourses as they're entering a period when like all businesses, like all homes, like all listeners to this pod, they will be facing extremely uh, more expensive energy bills. They will be hit hard by those as we all will be. So racecourses will need everyone they can get through the gates to prop up their incomes. It will be interesting to see to what extent that occurs. I'm just going to pause there, Lee, because I need to take the sourdough out of the oven. Oh, my, what a man you yeah. are. Well, there we are. Looking great. I'm, I am impressed. So, you see, Nick Luck, he, he yeah. does a lot. Don't get me wrong. He does he a might, lot. But... He, he might be getting up at 4 a.m. to do, um, you know, to, to do a podcast from America. But can he make a sourdough mid-pod? I, 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 I doubt he can, to be fair. I don't, I don't think so. Also, today we learn, Lee, that's two champions of the sport two giants of the sport so henry cecil and willie carson are being inducted into the kipco british champion series hall of fame that happens on saturday on kipco british champions day two people that really belong in that hall of fame absolutely yeah um the hall of fame has been a a welcome addition to uh british horse racing um it's it's not a it's not a perfect entity um it's a it's a purely uh flat racing um thing that's linked to champion series and and to to kipco and it obviously because of where it's starting now it's it's on a it's on a catch-up process having to look into the past and and select people who who should go into it when in, in reality there are many more people who would be worthy of a hall of fame title than have got the Hall of Fame title. In an ideal world, you'd almost look back across the many centres of horse racing and say, these people are all worthy of being a, a Hall of Famer, and then we start from scratch and work forward. That's probably not a practical way of doing it. We do, though, at least now have a, a Hall of Fame. That's a good thing. And nobody would argue that Sir Henry Cecil and Willie Carson are not entirely worthy of being within it. Two towering figures in British horse racing. Um, sadly, of course, we no longer have Sir Henry Cecil with us, but anyone who was at Ascot on the day that Frankel won his final race in that Champions Stakes will know what a deeply poignant occasion it was. Um, fortunately, we very much still do have Willie Carson with us, and I've had a number of enjoyable conversations with Willie this year, two in particular, 
uh, one after um, the Queen Anne at Ascot when uh, Angus Gold suggested, Shadwell's Angus Gold suggested that, that Bailly should now be deemed comparable to, to Nashwan. Willie scoffed at that suggestion and showed a huge lack of respect for his former employer, Mr Gold. Uh, but then after the Chudwant International, he had revised his opinion and felt that now Bailly probably was superior to Nashwan. So uh, it'll be interesting what Willie says after the Champions League. On, on Saturday, but two towering figures, as I say, and entirely worthy of being Hall of Famers. Well, Willie Carson joins me now. Uh, Willie, we, we've actually just been talking um, Baid versus um, Nashwan because I, I know you've revised your opinion. Perhaps where do you where do you stand now on the qualities of Baid over Nashwan? Well, well, we'll know a bit more on Saturday, but uh, it looks as though Baid is oh, superior to Nashwan. Yeah, well. Although Nashwan did something that no other horse has ever done, winning four Group Ones in a very short time, mm. uh, which took its toll at the end of the season with Nashwan, where Bayid, who has come up the, the ladder very slowly, and of course, as we all know, nobody's beaten him, mm. and we don't expect him to be beaten on Saturday either. No. Um, he seemed to be a better horse. He'd been winning over a mile, and of course, he was. This is now a mile and a quarter, and he's even better a mile and a quarter. And you're going to be there, Willie, on on Saturday, of course, to see that and to be inducted into the Kipco British Champion Series Hall of Fame. What? what how did you feel when you heard that? Ah, oh, I was very humbled. Uh, uh, well, <coughs> usually you have to be dead to get get into that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite humbling uh, to think that uh, we've got that uh, accolade. Um, yes, it's it wasn't it, it wasn't expected in any way. Um, yes, and uh, well, what can one say about that? It's, you, it's, a great, it's a great honour. It's a great honour. You're being inducted with one of the all-time great trainers as well, Sir Henry Cecil Willie, who you know you 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 will have, I'm sure, great memories of. Oh, of course, yes. Uh, Rodham, I think, uh, an Oaks winner in France, the Prix Diane, on Rapper. And I think I won that seven furlong race on uh, the Group 1 at the end of the season um, for him. Um, and, of course, I was always trying to beat his horses, and they mm. were always beating me. <laughs> was it, Well, was he an easier man to ride for or against? Willie, what what uh, what was he like? Oh, when you when you rode for him, um, it was he he left a lot to the the jockey. Well, especially he only ever used top jockeys, and he he would leave it to you know you were paid to do a job and you were supposed to do all your homework, and he expected that. And it was we as far as I remember, he would just be a person who would talk over the situation, and you made up your own mind. And you went out there and did what was normally the right thing. Ride the horse. He was a man that you knew that his horses were fit, they wouldn't stop, and they would keep going. So you were always, when you rode for him, you could jump out of the stalls and take your view on the pace of the race and get your horse into a rhythm. That would be the way you would sort of ride a Henry Cecil horse. Okay, here is Mr. Can't Make a Sourdough Luck. 
So the final round, the last staging post as regards trial races, win and your in races for the Breeders' Cup have all taken place this weekend from coast to coast, from New York to California with Kentucky in between. Matt Bernier from NBC Sports is with me to review it and to, to tell you where to put your money in a couple of weeks' time. Let's start with the Juvenile Colts, Matt, because Cave Rock put in a, a ridiculously good performance in the American Pharaoh at Santa Anita. He led home a one two three four in a grade one for trainer Bob Baffert. He's got a deep field to contend with. Just how, how stellar do you think this horse is? He's probably going to be the odds-on favorite for the juvenile, and it's a pretty good group of two-year-old boys in the United States this year, but Cave Rock's been spectacular. He's never had anyone closer than five and a quarter lengths when it's all said and done. Uh, uh, his dad, the late sire Arrowgate, he looks a lot like him. He runs a lot like him. Go right to the front, and he just powers home. Uh, he got a 104 buyer speed figure, which makes him arguably the fastest two-year-old in the, the entire country, and he deserves to be a pretty heavy favorite in that race. So let's think of the other horses that he's going to have to beat. He's going to have to beat the 1-2 from the trial race at Keeneland, Forte and Loggins, and Blazing Sevens, who was impressive in the Champagne at Belmont at Aqueduct last week. I thought, in the grand scheme of things, Forte had a pretty good setup winning that Breeders' Futurity. The pace was hot. Loggins was part of that. And for him to battle on the way that he did, I thought was very credible. And only a second lifetime start. They both earned fast speed figures. The problem is, compared to Cave Rock, they're still lengths behind. And as far as Blazing Sevens is concerned, I would put him behind the two horses we saw run one to at Keeneland. Who are they themselves a few lengths or a few notches below Cave Rock? Cave Rock with all before him for Bob Baffert, who had a one, two, three, four in the Grade One American Pharaoh at Santa Anita. Talk about some of the racing uh, elsewhere in the country. Todd Pletcher dominated uh, many of the other Grade Ones in the East. Nest and Malathat both won. Nest won the Grade Two Belday. Malathat the Grade One Spinster at Aqueduct and Keeneland, respectively. They will go head to head in the Breeders' Cup Distaff. Uh, how clear an edge do you think Nest has? And did Malathat need to improve to win the Spinster? Well, to be honest, I don't know that either of them has an edge in the race. I mean, they're both coming into it. They've solidified the one-two choices for the distaff. I don't think there's any argument there. But you're splitting hairs, really, when you break them apart. To me, I would give a slight edge to Nest simply because I think she's going to get the jump on Malathat. And we've seen Malathat's a little bit of a, I don't want to call her lazy, but John Velasquez needs to work to get her really to run at the end of the races. Uh, Nest has that ability to be in front of her, and I think she has just as much stamina as a horse like Malathad. So it's hard to separate the two. Me personally, I'm leaning toward the three-year-old Philly Nest. Todd Pletcher, not for the first time, with a stranglehold on the Distaff division. Uh, he may also have something to say about the Turf Mile, um, where he will face modern games with Annapolis. Three-year-old Colt lightly raced, very impressive, beat a group of elders in the Coolmore Mile on Saturday evening. Were you similarly impressed, Matt? I thought it was a fantastic performance. You know, this is a horse that his only losses to date, one of them came over an absolute swamp at Penn National in his first start as a three-year-old, and the other came at a mile and three-sixteenths behind Nation's Pride. It's a distance he probably doesn't want to go. They get him back to this mile, uh, and I thought he pulled what I call the, the wise Dan, the Teppen kind of trip, where you're right up close to the pace, you're sort of in that pocket, and you've got enough finish that the deep closers who they save all their energy for that stretch run, they still can't run you down because you've got a little bit left in the tank. Uh, I do think it's fascinating now that it does seem like it sets up a matchup between two three-year-olds for the Breeders' Cup mile between Annapolis 
and modern games. Annapolis probably has a little bit more to find if he's going to run with Applebee's runner, but uh, I think he's at least acquitted himself well enough to make you think that he'll be the second choice in the mile. Yes, and Ivar, who ran a very creditable race behind Annapolis, had been beaten miles by modern games at Woodbine. Are you in, uh, inclined to use that as a reliable yardstick? Yeah, because I believe Ivar is relatively consistent. He shows up and runs his race, and I think he more or less replicated the Woodbine effort on Saturday at Keeneland. And again, if you want to use that sort of as your measuring stick, Modern Games was, what, somewhere five lengths clear, and Annapolis was about two lengths clear. So I think Annapolis could still, in theory, take another step forward, but I do think he does have a little bit left to find if he's going to run with Modern Games. Yeah, of course, we're still waiting to hear whether Modern Games runs at Ascot on Saturday. But with the weather forecast, it's probably a little bit doubtful. Warlike Goddess is the best staying turf prospect for the, for the $4 million turf, do you think? I would say so, uh, boys or girls. I mean, she's the best long-distance turf horse we have in the United States. Uh, frankly, that's probably not saying much because the big horses that she needs to run against, or at least on Saturday that she ran against, were Gufo and Adamo, and they ran last and second last. So it kind of goes to show that we don't have the strongest group of long-distance runners here in the United States. Uh, but that that's not to take away from her. She is a legitimately talented filly, and I think at a mile and a half... As far as the Americans are concerned, she's got a big chance. As always, the grass races in the Breeders' Cup depend on which Europeans, and I should just say the foreign contingent, because who knows if Japan's going to send something over, but which Europeans come over here? Because otherwise, you could argue that the race is hers to lose. Okay, and talking about the turf juvenile performances, and the winner is, was very impressive for Wayne Catalano in the uh, big race for two-year-old turfers yesterday at Keeneland, or Sunday at Keeneland, I should say, the Bourbon Stakes. Um, any chance against some of the better European juvenile turf colts or not? Well, he, he continues to take steps forward. You can't knock him for that. I do think he got a very advantageous pace scenario to run at on Saturday, or excuse me, on Sunday at Keeneland. Uh, the pace was pretty legitimate, and he rallied from off of it. But to be fair, he almost won by three lengths, so... Uh, it's hard to knock. Wayne Catalano was very confident going into it, and I think he has every right to be confident coming out of it. Uh, but we know historically that Breeders' Cup juvenile turf has been dominated by Europeans. And again, we sound like a broken record, but it just depends what Applebee or O'Brien or anyone else decides to send over. Because uh, if they send anything with some ability, then frankly, our Americans are probably a notch or two below. There's going to be a big European contingent in the turf sprint, uh, Highfield Princess being the best of them. Uh, Golden Pal uh, continued his love affair with Keeneland when breaking a stakes record a couple of days ago. How impressed were you with him? Well, I, honestly, I thought he was a little bit drifty down the lane, and I, there's a part of me that still doesn't believe he's the old Golden Pal that would just go out and blitz the field. But then when you see the speed figures come back, he arguably ran as fast as he's ever run. So, um, you know, go against Wesley Warden, a turf sprint at your own peril. But I, part of me doesn't think he's quite the same, but he may not need to be the same to be the best of the turf sprinters. Well, the story of uh, book two yesterday at Tattersall's was certainly lot 570. The Son of Sea, the Stars, sold for 800,000 guineas. That's the fourth best book two price ever, the best since 2019. And it's also the best yielding sell for consigner Fiona Marner and for Windmill Farm. And, and Fiona joins me now. You, you may have seen... Um, a video of an emotional Fiona on social media, which I think is absolutely lovely to see, Fiona. Um, how are you feeling this morning? And, and did you have any expectation that this cult was going to make something like that? Well, Tom, good morning. We, 
yeah, we always sort of thought he was lovely from the day he was born. And um, we sort of had high hopes, but no, nothing like that. You know, especially when his, his full brother in blood only made 100,000 in book one. And um, it is, so this was an incredible uh, achievement, really, for my team. And we're, because we're so small, we can give horses very individual attention. But it was it was very magical. And I have two very special partners who've been with me for years. And they're just over the moon. You've obviously been doing this for a number of years, Fiona. Why... Why was this so emotional? Uh, well, a lot of it was because my um, late husband, Christian, it was his vision to buy Windmill Farm, you know, to sort of semi-retire and just have a couple of favourite mares and take life easy and do some travelling. So uh, I really, when the horse got to half a million, um, I found it quite hard, very emotional mm-hmm. because I know how proud he will be. So um, that was, um, and also for my staff, because they do work, very, you know, very hard, long hours and um, through all bad, you know, winter conditions. Anyway, it was just, um, yeah, it, I, I did become very emotional. Um, and listen, you know, quite rightly, and it, and it was great to see. Uh, tell me about the, the mare. When did you buy the mare? Um, I bought her as a three-year-old. She was in training in France with Andre Farb. But I've always loved German families. I mean, I've got um, three fabulous German families that have done us so well, um, especially Galileo Mayer and her first nine foals have all won. They're all winners, um, including Greatwood, who was a stakes horse. And they're just so sound and tough. And the Germans, you know, were so clever at only breeding from the best and sound horses. So I've always followed them. And um, I have a dear friend, Axel Donnerstag, who's uh, an agent in Germany. And we've spent many weeks and days going around Germany looking at yearnings, um, national hunt horses. I've bought bought some wonderful national hunt horses um, from Germany. And um, so if there's an interesting pedigree, uh, I always try and go for it. And um, I love this this family because it's a sort of perfect cross between a really good German family and an English family, going back to Gullnook and Pentar and Inglenook, all this. really good it's a good solid english family with with the german family in the middle and um i'm a good fan great fan of shamadal uh so she ticked all the boxes is there a um a half sister or half brother foal unfortunately not no she was in foal to showcasing but it was twins and sadly it's lost them both but she's in foal now to see the stars again and she's carrying a colt so that's great news uh, good news. Listen, Fiona, it's, it's lovely to catch up and, and hear the story, and well done again. Thank you, Tom. Well, that wasn't the only notable horse sold yesterday. A great story, but uh, also Lambwade Stud was successful, sold three yearling colts by See the Moon at book two sales at Tattersall's, um, averaged 190,000 guineas, over 12 times See the Moon's 2020 stud fee. Good biz, they said on social media. Here's Nick again. Okay, it is Tuesday, so we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's, their their stallion book and their global stallion app, and of course those lovingly prepared pedigree pages that you're seeing in all the sales catalogues at the moment. There are very few people who've made more than one appearance on this slot in the 
200 weeks or whatever it's been since we've been doing it. But I think you'll agree that it's entirely fitting that we welcome back to the show uh, from Landwade Stud, Kirsten Rousing, fresh from the wonderful success of Alpinista in the in the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. A, a, a true triumph for passion and persistence and um, a complete devotion to the breeding of thoroughbred racehorses. Kirsten, many congratulations. Many thanks indeed, Nick. I am so thrilled and very, very grateful to have been able to produce this marvellous race mare. On the catalogue page, on Alpinista's catalogue page, if you were to produce her pedigree, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you said that you'd bred every single named horse on it. Is that is that right? That is right, actually. If you go down to... Um and include her third dam alouette, which normally fits into the cat onto the catalogue page. Um, I have read every name on the catalogue page. Yes. Um, does that does that give you the sort of satisfaction that I can imagine? <laughs> well, I suppose it does, but uh, it would probably be only for pedigree nerds like myself. Uh, and we discussed this briefly last time you appeared on the on the show. What really sparked that that nerdish interest, as you put it, in in pedigrees that that sort of absolute devotion to to trying to work out what's going to go well with what. It's hard to say what sparked it, but my late grandfather, he taught me a bit about pedigrees uh, of other species, such as dairy cattle and gun dogs, um, because they were more within our reach at the time. And, um, uh, you know, so I got the groundings there, but and I was only as a schoolgirl at the time. And then I um, moved on to racehorses, so I came into racing the wrong way uh, in as much as I started looking at pedigrees before I even went racing. Um, and uh, so I was always fascinated by pedigrees, their pattern, what becomes things that become repeatedly obvious and so on. Nowadays, of course, you can do it all by computers, but in those days you had to figure it out for yourself mostly. Was it harder then or is it harder now, do you think, to get a to get a foothold? Oh no, I think it's much easier now. Much easier now. Uh in as much as uh you have, if anything, uh, a surplus of information with all these different um, computer programs and so on, none of which I'm afraid I use, but um, I'm sure that lots of people do. But, uh, of course, it's a matter of how to interpret this enormous flow of information because I'm sure you and your listeners are well aware of the old saying, you know, there are... Um, lies, damned lies and statistics meaning that the latter can be made to be worse than the former Um, so one has to understand how to interpret the enormous inflow of information Um, particularly uh, I'm referring now to uh, pedigrees of thoroughbred horses And, and in terms of how you arrived at Alpinista, what would you what would you have said down the years have been the most important decisions you made to to end up with an art winner? Could you could you pick a couple of little turning points, a couple of decisions that you just jumped the right side of? Well, um, it's a rather wide spanning question, but obviously the most important decision I ever made was 
to purchase um, Al Rukaba, her fourth dam. Um, and I was indeed very lucky that nobody else, other than my great friend Sonia Rogers in Ireland, nobody else seemed to have twigged um, the uh, value of potential, potential value of this mare, Philly, as she then was, um, because. Uh, we were able to buy her for one bid above the very modest um, reserve price at the time. Um, so that, in fact, the, the, the fact that I could buy the filly for 19,000 guineas in 1985, um, I think that was by far the most important decision I made in this in this context. Um, but perhaps the matings also were relevant um, at a later stage. And of course, the huge proportion of the family have been have been trained at Heath House. I know you've talked about Sir Mark, and Sir Mark has talked about you, and uh, and this has been very uh, well trodden path in the last in the last eight or nine days. Um, but it, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm interested from a breeder's perspective as to what you are what you are looking for in a trainer. What's important first and foremost? Uh, well, for me, uh, it is important that the trainer shares my ambition. In um, you know, I would rather be. Uh, third in a black type race than winning a second handicap that sort of thing so uh, my ambition is always to try and improve my pedigrees if at all possible um, and of course it's always very very nice to win races um, but it is more important um, if you have uh, an animal of a certain ability to my mind it's more important to try and achieve that um, all-important black type rather than win a big handicap and and is have you managed to be completely aligned with with sir mark on that who <laughs> <laughs> well i don't think we've won very many handicaps over the years in spite of what the punters think so it's 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 obviously worked and worked gloriously in your in your favour. I, I wanted to know whether you still get the same pleasure from nurturing the career of stallions as you do from cultivating your your female families. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yes, and of course the stallions are, are very very important to me as a. Uh, commercial breeder to an extent and as a stallion farm very much so um, you know one puts one's heart and soul into the stallions and many of them are with me for a very long time um, most of them are with me throughout their breeding career so for instance um, between Niniski Selkirk and Niniski's son Hernando, I suppose they were here 65 or 70 seasons jointly. So, so you know, one can't help by, but get very attached to the old boys when you have them outside your door for 20, 25 years each. Is there one that you're particularly attached to at the moment? Um, well, we always, uh, one always has favourites and uh, uh, 
you know, one should try not to. But of course, um, I re I'm really attached to the four stallions I have here. Now we have three Derby winners, Sir Percy, See the Moon and Study of Man, and one Breeders' Cup sprint winner, Bobby's Kitten. And they're all dear to my heart. Who really is the, the flag flyer for you at the moment, would you say, Kirsten? Well, at the moment, I suppose Cedar uh, Moon is the flag carrier because he um, has, um, obviously, he's now a made horse. He is uh, in the, his pri the prime of his life. He uh, just had an important winner yesterday in Cologne, his son, two-year-old son, Fantastic Moon, won the winter favourites prize group three, thereby becoming a uh, favourite for next year's German Derby, which is sire one, of course, and also um, thereby most likely ending up champion two-year-old in Germany. Um, and Siedemann has had two such previous ones. So... That's an important win for Cedar Moon, who has three stakes winning two-year-olds this year. Um, so at the moment, he is my flagship stallion. He's been very busy covering mares from all over Europe, um, and he's very popular also at the sales. Um, obviously, my young horse, Study of Man, winner of the French Derby, which, as we know, is very much a stallion-making race. He's got his first crop yearlings this year, and we very much look forward to seeing his uh, produce runners, two- and three-year-olds, in the next two years. Um, and I have great expectations for him. Now, this could be a really an extraordinary Landwade's autumn treble, Kirsten, because you had Elder Elderoff, who you bred, won the, the St. Ledger, and then obviously we know what Al Alpinista did the other day. You've got Alba Flora in the Phillies and Mares at Ascot. Is it is it the plan to run her? Um, at the moment, she remains in. Uh, we are, of course, watching the ground conditions uh, very closely at Ascot. Um, she has not quite lived up to her previous form this year. Um, she ran a fantastic race at Ascot last year when only just beaten her the shortest of heads in that race. Um, at the moment, I would say her participation is not more than 50-50 uh, as of today. Okay. Um, she another one from that, that terrific family. I, I think we probably yes. ought to to end where we we began and and talk a little bit about what alpinista can can now do in terms of building building for the future and and what what the plan is going to be for the spring the plan for the spring is definitely the paddocks at uh, landwage start mm -hmm. um and uh, uh because she'll be a six-year-old then, so she'll, she'll definitely retire at the end of this year. Um, whether she runs again at this precise moment is not decided. There are only two opportunities for her, which would be the Japan Cup um, or the Breeders' Cup. And um, in fact, I would say the firmer going in Japan would be attractive to us because she's always 
actually been particularly good on firm going. So from that point of view, it was even more of an admirable achievement on that very heavy ground in Paris. Um, but uh, it's a very, very long journey to uh, Japan, which has made, which has been made. F- longer due to recent political upheaval in in uh, Europe um, the flight route has become longer than it ever was so it's 15 16 hours in the air times two if she's to come back which one would hope so I am um, I'm pondering this at the moment mm. Um and, That's for sure. And given, as I said, given where we started, given that it's been your love, your absolute passion, your obsession, no less, to to plan what mare visits, what stallion to produce, what racehorse, you must have been thinking about who she's going to go for 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 ages, haven't you? What what are you what are you thinking at the moment? Well, I can tell you that she's going to go visit Study of Man in 2024. That much I can tell you. <laughs> okay, so we, we, we've got we've got a year bar one. So she'll go to Study of Man in 2024, which should give your 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 Derby winner a big boost. What about 2023, Kirsten? What about for a mare's first covering? Obviously, um, there are. Um, there are a few horses she could visit and um, one in particular who is not getting any younger. But nothing is written in stone yet, so therefore I can't really talk about that um, until we have made firm firm arrangements. But um, I should think that your listeners will know which way my mind is working in this instance because one has to look not only at what makes a pretty pattern on paper but also what is uh, logistically and uh, in general possible certainly in terms of ages of stallions involved and such like and also for most of us certainly myself included one has to look at the economics of the whole Mm. thing so i'm i'm expecting um dubawi 23 study of man 24 and then maybe who knows after that exactly after that we don't know as yet but um um you know as i said before i can't really (laughs) say anything until everything is confirmed no understood um kirsten uh, i very much appreciate your time today uh congratulations again and thanks so much for for agreeing to be on the show not at all thank you nick rightly you can send us home with a winner please uh, I'm going to be very, very boring, I'm afraid, Tom. I'm going to go to Leicester in the 2.30, the British EBF Novice Stakes. One of a number of really interesting races on, on this Leicester card today. It's a good meeting. Uh, Godolphin have a juvenile high bank who was extremely impressive first time out. Didn't quite build on that second time out at Newbury. His price is actually bigger than one might have expected because there appears to be a fair degree of of market support by a card but newcomer flight plan and you always have to respect those card but newcomers when they're backed in the uh, in the market but i think high bank is a decent price and they go with high bank in the 230 at leicester lovely job lee thank you very much indeed thanks to everyone at home for listening and uh, nick always says do give us a, a review up to five stars on apple or via your preferred podcast app and you can subscribe for free as well. It's well worth doing and the best way to support this podcast. That was Tuesday, the 11th of October. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.